This is Macro Horizons, Episode 89, Fourth Quarter Drive, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of October 5th. And as we enter the time of the year when apple picking and hayrides typically replace beach trips and sunbathing, we're left to ponder if this year, binge-watching television will be replaced by binge-watching television. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. The week just passed and the Treasury market offered some fundamental inputs that will help shape investor expectations going forward, not least of which being Friday's non-farm payroll report. While the headline print of 661,000 jobs added in the month of September disappointed versus the consensus of 859,000 jobs, the private NFP print of 877,000 jobs was 27 more than the expected 850,000 level, and on net revisions added 145,000 over the course of the prior two months. So the takeaway was it was a somewhat mixed employment report because the headline was impacted by the education sector losing a significant amount of jobs on the state and local level. However, the unemployment rate did decline to 7.9% from 8.4, well out of double-digit territory and consistent with a labor market that continues the slow process of normalizing as the pandemic remains well in place. Now, 10-year yields spent the vast majority of the week between 65 and 70 basis points. Now, to be fair, they spent the vast majority of September in a remarkably similar range. The parallels with the front end of the curve are not lost on us. With two-year yields at 13 basis points, we've seen this sector between 11 and 15 basis points throughout much of the last several months. Unlike the longer end of the curve, where we do expect upward pressure by the end of the year, the front-end sectors will remain largely anchored to monetary policy expectations for the foreseeable future. It's also worth noting that the description front-end will increasingly start to encapsulate slightly longer duration securities. So, for example, we've historically thought of twos as the front-end being anchored to monetary policy expectations. However, given the Fed's recent updated rate projections, we can see that that has extended out to the three-year sector and increasingly the five-year sector. For context, the five-year sector has remained between 25 and 30 basis points in terms of yields 
over the course of the last several weeks. Our expectations are for that range, as with the two and three year sector, to remain largely in place well into 2021 and beyond. Said differently, the bulk of the price action of interest will occur in tins, 20s, and 30s. Now, we've long maintained that the shape of the yield curve will be effectively a directional trade, and we do not see that changing anytime soon. So a bear steepener into the end of the year with episodes of bull flattening associated with flight to quality moves. So while there's certainly other things going on in the market at the moment, the September NFP data was a bit counterintuitive. We had a headline miss, but yet private jobs came in well above expectations. What's the read here? Well, that was largely a function of education jobs. We saw a significant reduction in state and local level education employment. And given the situation with COVID-19 and the start of the school year, I'll have to say that that wasn't too surprising, although it is troubling because typically we don't really look at government jobs as a major influence of the overall employment landscape simply because while they represent a meaningful portion of the overall employment landscape, they tend to be relatively stable. So perhaps we might be interested occasionally with some of the census moves, but typically government jobs are not a go-to when trading the NFP print. What makes this situation somewhat different was the fact that this is so clearly a function of the pandemic. And taking a look at the price action, I think we can say with a straight face that we really didn't see much of an impact from the BLS's report. However, I'd offer the caveat that the unemployment rate fell, average hourly earnings increased, and private NFP beat. So that offsets to some extent the weakness that we see in the headline and the big news from Friday wasn't the job numbers anyway. It was really the announcement that Donald Trump has COVID-19. Yeah, and the risk-off reaction follows pretty intuitively from that news. But what was most remarkable to me in the Treasury market, at least, was the fact that even those headlines couldn't even get 10-year yields below 64 basis, 65 basis points. Yeah, let's face it. There's a, there's a certain degree of magnetism to that 65 to 70 basis point range in 10-year yields. That's highly unlikely to give way until we have more clarity on the election front had a very thoughtful client question in the wake of the news, and that was, is there any risk that the presidential election gets postponed if Trump falls very ill? Had this not been 2020, my initial response would have been no chance. But the fact of the matter is this year has delivered plenty of surprises. And while the baseline assumption on the part of market participants will be that the election goes on as scheduled, I think that one would be remiss not to at least acknowledge that investors might try to price in some type of delay, although it has to be an act of Congress. And I struggle to comprehend the political calculus that would result in a meaningful delay to the election. One of the other potential impacts of Trump falling ill, however, could be a potential shifting probabilities of electoral outcomes. It's not obvious which way this breaks just yet, but it's likely that this may be the October surprise of 2020. Of course, it is 2020, so who knows what's going to come later in the month. But 
Trump falling ill reduces his ability to go out and campaign. It kind of chips away at some of that I'm super healthy and I'm invulnerable mentality. And all else equal, this seems like, at least from a political sense, it may raise the probability of a Biden victory. Still too early to say that for sure, but that's kind of my gut reaction. The other potential impact that this could have is on a stimulus measure. If all of a sudden there's a lot more sympathy or empathy around the coronavirus, there could be more urgency to get something passed before the election. Ian, do you think that this may result in a higher probability of stimulus before the election, or are we still in the wait until after the vote is done camp? I had been assuming that the political back and forth would prevent anything from occurring before the election. However, this most recent week suggests that there is more forward momentum than I had built into that assumption. Couple that with the White House as a new potential hotspot. And I think to your point, John, that we actually might see something ahead of early November. One way to think about this is if the president isn't able to get out and campaign in person, he'll need to do something to make up for that absent momentum on the campaign trail somewhere else. It seems like trying to put through a fiscal program is possible. It's also possible that we would see something on the executive order front, either to take the narrative off of him being sick or to try to emphasize that he's still alive, he's still functioning, he's just governing from his apartment. Like everybody else, the president is basically just working from home for right now. And I think that's the way I'm going to be thinking about it, unless there's all of a sudden news that he or the first lady have taken a turn for the worse, something akin to the Boris Johnson situation we saw several months ago in the UK. Now, one of the tricky things about the UK experience, the prime minister actually ceded governing control temporarily to somebody else. Is this something that could be in the cards that could lead to some governing uncertainty or just raise the general level of political uncertainty in the next few weeks, which is pretty hard to do given that the level of political uncertainty was already huge going into this election? Well, in the U.S., it's clear who would step up in the event that Trump actually does become incapacitated. And so that puts an emphasis on the vice president as well as the debates, which are quickly approaching on the horizon. Ben, what's your take on the vice presidential debates? Yeah, and this was something that was being discussed even before the latest COVID news. And that is that given what we saw at the first presidential debate, to put it diplomatically, not a great focus on actual policy, that this year's vice presidential debate might actually garner more attention than what is typical for when VPs debate in a normal campaign cycle. With Vice President Pence and Senator Harris set to take the stage on Wednesday, the fact that we have this COVID uncertainty in the mix, the fact that the presidential debate really didn't offer any tradable information, and the fact that the vice presidential nomination in Biden's case is a bit bigger deal than would otherwise be assumed, I think at a minimum we should expect greater focus on this year's vice presidential debate than we've seen in recent history. I think one thing's for sure, and it's a bit ironic, but the vice presidential debate is very likely to be more presidential than the actual presidential debate. A fact certainly not wasted on us. It's also notable that we're spending a lot of time talking about politics when we are in the middle of a pandemic. We're still waiting for some confirmation that the progress toward a vaccine has been sufficient to expect mass inoculation in 2021. Now, part of this is simply a function of proximity to the upcoming event risk, i.e. the election is the next big event. 
But the fact of the matter is the treasury market has been in a holding pattern for a very long time. We are not actually anticipating a breakout until the elections are safely behind us. Trump's COVID-19 news, I'll argue, introduces a new event risk, and that's the end of his quarantine. John, you alluded to this a bit earlier. What happens if we get two weeks into this and he emerges no worse for wear? Does that end up being a net positive for risk assets? Or do you think that we would see a retracement because it adds in yet another level of uncertainty? My first thought to that question, which is a good and nuanced one, is I think it translates to a negative for risk assets to the extent it further clouds the election outcome. You know, over the next few weeks, the election is arguably the most important thing going on in financial markets, followed by the path of the COVID virus. If as a result of Trump falling ill, there starts to be a higher and higher conviction that Biden wins, that reduces uncertainty and could be good for risk assets. The flip side could also be very true. And if Trump comes out of quarantine stronger, healthier, more voracious, I think it could play well with him politically. The other thing that I would point out, though, is as we get into October, the possibility of a second wave is becoming ever more apparent, but it also could break the other direction. If you remember back at the beginning of all of this coronavirus stuff, there was a lot of talk about R0, basically how many people any individual infects. Well, we've had a long enough time where we can actually measure that at the state level right now. And 15 separate states have an R effective, basically where R0 is now, of below one. If that number is below one, that means that the virus will not be able to exponentially spread and is a very strong positive. As we go forward in the coming weeks and we roll more and more into fall season and flu season, watching these numbers is also going to be incredibly important. So I think kind of the president is a nice case study in the possibility of a big wave going into the fall. But it's also going to be really important to pay attention to how are things spreading, in what states are they spreading, are new lockdowns being initiated, or are governors kind of trying to push past the need for a lockdown this time around, hoping that the hospital system can handle any potential uptake in hospitalizations. And this also speaks to the argument that the world was not prepared for a global pandemic at the beginning of 2020, but now we're in a better position. We have protocols in place. And John, as you point out, we could actually emerge from a second wave with more investor confidence that we have the protocols in place to contain the virus if there are future outbreaks. And Ian, I think that's exactly right. The hospital system and the healthcare system is in a very different position now than it was seven months ago, which is crazy to say out loud, when quarantining really started. What that means then is that the policies necessary to control the virus, aka these big lockdowns, the forced stop of the economy, might not be as necessary this time around. So not only in response to a second wave are you seeing lower hospitalizations, lower deaths, you also probably aren't going to need as restrictive of economic policies. Now, you might need some, and so we're not going to see another negative 30 plus percent GDP print, but it still could be a drag going forward. Trying to balance out these relative factors is going to be a big deal over the coming months, regardless of who wins the presidential election. And this brings us to a question that I think all of us are being asked with increasing frequency, and that is, 
It's Q4 now. Once the election is known, what's next? And the fact that there is some optimism on the economy's ability to weather a second wave of the coronavirus and the chances of another fiscal package and a Fed that still stands ready to do more if needed creates at least a decent argument for the last portions of this year to be characterized by some economic optimism or even inflationary ambitions that might be taken into early 2021 and could translate to at least a marginally steeper curve. And that does fit well with our general expectations for the latter half of Q4 and the beginning of Q1 to be characterized by pricing in a reasonable amount of economic optimism for the year ahead. Now, at present, the market is in that holding pattern that we've referenced, but there will presumably be a reevaluation between now and the beginning of 2021. Speaking of year-end evaluations... Wait, 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 wait. Might it be best to turn the microphones off for this? Sure. Management can still hear you. In the week ahead, the Treasury market has only a few fundamental inputs, namely ISM services to lead the week on Monday. We also do get the FOMC minutes, which should give a little bit more context in terms of the Fed's thinking about the next potential efforts to provide further accommodation. There's also plenty of Fed speak offered throughout the week, including Powell, Williams, Evans, Rosengren, and Kashkari. The takeaway from the incoming Fed speak thus far has been very much on message, more the same, act as appropriate, very long time before the Fed has any interest in normalizing rates. In addition, there has been an emphasis on the fiscal side of the equation as being key to support the economic recovery. In light of the president's recent COVID-19 diagnosis and the upcoming vice presidential debates on Wednesday, the political sphere will remain very important to driving risk assets and subsequently U.S. rates. With that being said, the range is very much topical and in place for the Treasury market. We'd be hard-pressed to envision a situation where 10-year yields can sustainably break above 75 basis points before the election, or once we do make it to the election itself, the big question then becomes how long will the period of uncertainty associated with the results last? If we find a decisive victory within 24 to 48 hours, that would be a clear risk on, push rates higher, support the domestic equity markets. The flip side being, if it does drag out through the week of the election itself or beyond, stocks will intuitively come under pressure, and that will push rates back to the lower end of the range. Without a strong bias in terms of the election results themselves, we'll err on the side of assuming that the sooner the results are known, the less volatility there'll be between now and the end of 2020. So more of a volatility story at this point than a true repricing of the outright level of rates, or even domestic equities for that matter. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as the institutional investor poll comes to an end on Friday, October 9th, we'd like to thank everyone who has already participated and ask those who have yet to weigh in to support Team BMO to please do so. 
even as we lament the absence of a snarky podcast category yet again this year. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.